trials are a little bit like a universal language. There are different dialects as we experience suffering in different ways, but we all know what it is to hurt. We all know what it is to experience difficult circumstances, to feel pain, to sense loss, to be burdened by the weight of our brokenness and the brokenness that we see across the world. We know something's wrong with this, and we start looking for answers for some kind of explanation for why there's pain and suffering. I'd submit that that's a lot harder for Christians than for non-Christians, because Christians, in their suffering, hear the voice of Jesus who calls all those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him so that they can find rest. But instead of receiving rest, they receive more pain. Instead of finding blessing and bliss, they encounter brokenness. So how is it that these words of Jesus can be true? How is it that he's keeping his promise if when we follow after him, there's no deep and abiding rest in sight? There's no singular answer to this question, to the problem of Christian suffering. It's too complex for this. It's too real and deep for a one-off answer or for the band-aid of a few Bible verses. So the text before us is not going to be a once-for-all and in every situation comprehensive answer. But it does give us a good start. It does help us begin to formulate an answer to the problem and questions that we have about our sufferings and our pain. In this text, James is addressing a group of diverse Christians scattered outside of Jerusalem, and he has really the larger purpose of giving them wisdom for all of life, to communicate the wisdom of God for the whole of their lives. He starts by addressing this issue of trials and suffering. Not because these Christians were experiencing suffering and trials in some unique way, but because suffering is just the normal part of the Christian experience. In these verses, he explains that Christians can joyfully endure trials because trials ultimately produce wholeness and holiness. This is the starting point in our answer to that question, and it's the central idea of what we'll consider this morning. You can joyfully endure trials because they ultimately produce wholeness and holiness. Although James begins his text with that command to consider trials of various kinds a great joy, we need to work up to that exhortation by first considering what he means by trials and how they actually operate to produce wholeness and holiness in our lives. Only then, I think, can we really start to grapple with what it means to consider our trials a great joy. So James instructs his readers to consider the experiences or encounters of various trials as a great joy. He uses the general term trials, and then he increases the generalization by modifying it with this descriptor various. So various trials signaling that virtually any negative experience that a Christian encounters qualifies as a trial. We need to reflect further This term rendered trials takes on various facets of meaning depending on the context. But James 
presents it in a way that he can draw on the full richness of its meaning. So when we use the term trial, a trial can be something neutral, just any difficult, difficult situation. It can be something judicial, like an examination that it's intended to prove guilt or innocence, rightness or wrongness. It can be evaluative, an opportunity to demonstrate the genuineness of something. It can be preparatory, so like an experiment that's conducted to prepare something for future use in necessary modification. And it can be educative, a circumstance in which a process is undergone that's not concerned with passing or failing the test or trial, but with learning something through the trial. Pull out your dictionary and look at all of these. I think James is drawing on all of this because trials of various kinds are somewhat doing all of these things simultaneously. Generally, when we think about trials, the positive aspects of a trial could be placed under this broader heading of a general test, and the negative aspects of the trial could be placed under the broader heading of a temptation, and often test and temptation come together in a trial. When we look at the biblical witness, when Satan has primary agency in the trial, the emphasis is on temptation. When God has primary agency in the trial, the emphasis is on testing. But here, James is not really concerned where the trial originates, But instead, he's concerned with the purpose of the trial as a test of faith and the result of the trial to bring about wholeness and holiness. So what I'm trying to say is any negative experience, a trial of any kind that you encounter, is intended to be a test of faith with the purpose of producing maturity and flourishing in the life of the Christian. So any hardship, any negative thing, In our text, James puts various trials and testing of faith in parallel in a way that helps Christians interpret their experience of trials. We are to interpret every hardship that we encounter as a testing of our faith. Now, there are some wrong ways to interpret hardship in your life. And James addresses these in verses 13 and 14. One wrong way to interpret the hardship that you're experiencing is to understand it as an act of God that's enticing you to sin. That's a wrong interpretation of trial. A wrong response to trials that James articulates is the response of committing sin in the trial. So both blaming God and committing sin. These are inappropriate interpretations and responses to the hardship in our lives. James, however, wants his readers to interpret whatever kind of trial they're experiencing, not fundamentally as temptation luring them to sin, but a testing of their faith that gives them an opportunity to display faithfulness. So instead of an activation of sin, it's an activation of faith. So this kind of testing brings into view especially the evaluative and educative aspects of a test. The evaluative aspect of a test provides an opportunity to demonstrate the genuineness of something. So if you're testing a product, you're showing how good the product actually is. James will draw on the most famous test in the Bible, 
Abraham's test of faith is an example of the kind of testing that he's talking about. The kind of testing that activates faith, that puts it into action to be displayed as faithfulness. So this is an evaluative circumstance. But there's also an educative aspect of the test of faith that provides an opportunity for development. It's a kind of situational and hands-on learning that produces in the Christian virtue rather than vice. It's the groundwork of Christian development that we often call discipleship. And we might wonder, why does a believer need an educative test of faith in an evaluative test of faith? Why is this necessary? Well, the very nature of these two mutually involved aspects of a test is that they reach beyond the cognitive and intellectual aspects of the Christian life to reach the unconscious but very real inner parts of the person. Tests draw out of people what they themselves didn't know resided within already, for better or for worse. They reveal what's inside of us. The educative aspect, the hands-on learning aspect, teaches us holistically, allowing the learner to do and become what they'll only upon later reflection actually be able to cognitively understand and reflect on. We need both of these things for our Christian development. Now, James suggests that the various trials faced by the Christian will reveal the genuineness of his or her faith, drawing out what remains hidden while also producing something in the Christian that they could have learned and lived in no other way. So in this way, I want to suggest that the testing of faith that James talks about here is not primarily about a judgment on whether a person has faith or not, but rather a situation in which faith becomes activated into faithfulness and in its activation becomes reinforced and strengthened, revealing the true nature of the faith that was already there. So tests of faith are not pass or fail experiences, but they're educative and evaluative. I don't think that it would be difficult for any of us to detect the presence of trials and hardship in our lives. Just think about your past week, the past year, or the past decade of your life, and there's not a single person here who has never been touched by suffering or trial. What's more difficult, though, is to gain an awareness of how you're interpreting that trial. To be self-reflective enough and to have enough perspective that we can see how we're understanding and responding to those trials in those tests of faith. Perhaps you're interpreting the challenges that you face as a result of simple bad luck, or perhaps just the natural product of your family upbringing, or of your environment, or even of your genetics. Perhaps you believe that bad things happen to you, because everyone's out to get you, like that annoying coworker or your spouse that just doesn't understand you. Perhaps you believe that God is out to get you, that he doesn't love you or care about you, and that's why bad things are happening to you. James wants you to interpret the trials differently. 
not to focus on its origination in bad luck or personal history or as the act of a vindictive God, but as an opportunity for you to see who you truly are deep within and as an opportunity for you to be formed in Christian virtue, for your faith to be strengthened and activated through the trial. A word of encouragement is in order, though, especially because if you're like me, when you pass through a trial and you see what's inside of you, it's uglier than what you would have guessed it would be. And it's not what you would have wanted other people to see coming out of you through the trial. It's sinful. This is my encouragement to you. It's only when our sin and unfaithfulness become exposed through the trial that something can be done about them. So the discovery of sin in your life as you pass through the trial is not a failing of the test, but it's the test doing its job. To fail the test will be to ignore what you see and to look the other way. But the presence of sin that comes out through the trial is not a failure of the test. It's a necessary part of it. But more than that, want to encourage you with the reality that inherent in the nature of the test of faith is a deep work of grace and redemption precisely because the test doesn't just reveal, it doesn't just evaluate, it also forms and educates. It's through that trial that reveals the sin that you were previously blind to that the sin can be weeded out and replaced with virtue and faithfulness to God. In this way, Trials are a very gracious and deeply kind act of God in your life. It's a necessary act of God in our lives. So this is what I think James is getting at when he talks about trials and tests of faith. But he builds on that. He wants to show us not only that trials reveal what's inside of us and form something in us, but they they thing that they form or the thing that they produce is the virtue of endurance, or we might call it fortitude or staying power, the capacity to bear up under difficult circumstances. So here, James is moving on to tell us how trials actually work. So they do reveal, but they also form, and they form particularly the virtue of endurance. The trial is what allows us to gain the fortitude and steadfastness that ironically is required to maintain faithfulness and steadfastness through the trial. Somewhat self-generating that way. But the thing about endurance and trials is that endurance has to last and trials don't always just go away. Because we don't get to control the trials that we're in or when they arrive in our lives. And as much as we try, we often can't get out of them. We get a sense of being stuck in the trial. And this being stuckness is what is necessary for endurance. The being stuckness in the hardship of the trial is necessary for the development of virtue in our lives. So just as a muscle can't get any stronger without being first weakened through sustained resistance, faith does not develop without first being exposed in a sustained way to difficulty. Endurance, though, is not something that is a goal in and of itself. Endurance, 
applied to the wrong thing is hard-headedness and rebellion in sin. So endurance is not just a thing to capture or to grab onto. Instead, God in, intends for endurance to grab onto you, to draw you into it, and to do its work. So endurance that is captured and held onto as a virtue in and of itself has no power. Instead, endurance is a lot more like faith, a virtue that's intended to be put to work, that's supposed to do its job. And it needs to do its job over a long period of time. That's why James goes on to say that we must let endurance have its full effect. But that's hard because if we could write our own scripts, we would hit the eject button before endurance is even needed. We don't want to endure. We want to escape. Now, the translation that we have says, let endurance have its full effect. And I think this is a fully justifiable translation, but I would translate it a little bit differently. I'd translate it more literally in this way. Let endurance do its whole work. I think it helps us understand that we have to allow the whole of a thing to happen, not to cut it off prematurely, to resist the natural urge to find an escape route before we make the whole journey to bail prematurely, to resist the inclination to find the easy way out or to finish the job only half done. That's not endurance having its whole work. But I want to give you two clarifications because you might hear, let endurance have its whole work and misunderstand what James is saying. First, endurance is not mere resignment to a bad situation or a passive bearing through hard circumstances. It is instead a constancy and a staying power that's animated by hope in the promises of God, by hope in the age to come. Endurance is not just a hard-headedness and a hard-heartedness that musters up enough grit to bear through a hard circumstance. It's not perseverance animated by bitterness or cynicism. This kind of endurance, a a false endurance, this produces a fractured self and it results in a mere facade of faith. There's a, a counterfeit endurance that is not true endurance. James is writing of something different. He writes of patient steadfastness, the outworking of faith in difficulty, an endurance animated by hope at what lies at the end of the trial. Second, a second misconception or question that we need to think about is that James is not trying to tell us that enduring a trial means that you never pursue circumstantial change or that it would be wrong for you to ask God to remove the trial from your life or to remove you from the trial. Now, I think that most of us have to work hard to fight against the natural inclination to give up as soon as something gets hard or to turn away from anything that might require sacrifice and suffering. We need to realize we have this inclination to avoid adversity. However, James is not teaching that endurance requires blind or thoughtless captivity to any difficulty that we might encounter. On the contrary, 
enduring through a trial means wise navigation of the situation while maintaining constant faithfulness to Christ. And sometimes that wisdom and faithfulness will demand that you change your circumstances. Other times, it will require that you stay put. So someone once told me, God never calls you to leave a situation if it's hard in the moment. And I understand what he was saying, but I think that's quite wrong. I think that is a hard-headedness that doesn't appeal to the wisdom of God to know how to proceed in life. But we're left with the question then, when do you know if God is calling you to stay put or to change your circumstances? There's no easy answer here. There's no paradigm that can be followed by everyone in every circumstance. I think the decision to stay in a hard circumstance or to change, to move, to leave that situation requires prayer and honest evaluation of your personal motivations and agenda. These decisions need to be, I believe, accompanied by wise pastoral counsel. But ultimately, these decisions require you to lean on the wisdom of God that's mediated by his spirit through his word within the context of the local community of faith, the church. Do you think in these situations it's probably wise to hesitate to trust your first impulse or to make a decision in isolation relying on yourself? Because very often we can't see our situations very clearly when we're in the middle of it. And others can help us see more clearly. Some of us naturally adopt a kind of hard-headed stain power that can't recognize when we need to take a different path, while others of us are inclined to change course at the drop of a hat. Some of us lack the courage to pursue a change of situation, so we convince ourselves that we're patiently enduring when instead we're just being dominated by fear and apathy. Others of us lack the perseverance to remain in a hard situation, so we justify running from hardship, excusing it as doing just whatever is best for me, or under the guise of Christian piety, declare that we're really just following God's will, which also happens to coincide with avoiding the cost of discipleship. See how we can all convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing when perhaps we're not. So we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to prayerfully seek God's wisdom. We need to invite others into our lives to help us as we pursue the right course of action. That's the best answer I can give you. So James calls us to endure the trial to endure the test of our faith. He says that we can do so because we know something. And often when we know just the right thing, we're able to operate in just the right way. And this is just the right thing that we need to know. We need to know what happens as a result of the trial, of the hardship, of the test of faith. When we allow endurance to do its whole work, it allows us to become mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, those of you who have grown up in the church reading different translations of the Bible, not the Christian Standard Bible that we're reading from this morning, probably hear instead the phrase, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So why is it that the CSB and other translations 
use the word mature, while the ESV and the King James Version and others use the word perfect. I suspect that the reason for this difference in translation is just because of the richness of the word that James uses. We've already discovered that James can grab onto a loaded, rich term that's full of meaning and put it in its most general situation so that he can draw on all of the meaning associated with it in those contexts. And the word that he chooses here carries with it the idea of wholeness, not just perfect wholeness, as in moral perfection, but also in terms of personal wholeness, as in the mature flourishing of a person's humanity. You can see why perfect and mature are two terms that translators decide on. I think I would want to render the phrase this way. Let endurance have its whole work so that you may be whole and complete, lacking nothing. I like this rendering because it draws out that parallel that James makes as he bridges the gap between what we ought to do with what we know will happen as a result of our faithfulness. Let endurance have its whole work so that you may be whole and complete, lacking nothing. I like this phrasing too because it calls to mind the ministry and teaching of Jesus who made people whole again both by healing them physically, bringing in physical flourishing, and declaring spiritual wholeness in the forgiveness of their sins. So it grabs onto the moral and the personal flourishing that's embedded in the word. It also calls to mind Jesus' paradoxical teaching about what it means to be truly whole, and we can be certain that James adopted the same view of wholeness. You see, Jesus points out on a variety of occasions that our natural disposition is to define wholeness, both moral and personal wholeness, incorrectly. Our natural inclination is to associate wholeness with the absence of trial and suffering, with the absence of any obvious defect, with the absence of any lack. Jesus, however, is interested in teaching a different kind of wholeness, teaching a kind of wholeness that goes deeper than the surface level, that thrives beneath the surface. It's the kind of wholeness that Jesus references when he declares that it's better to enter heaven maimed than to enter hell whole. He shows that there's a way of life, a way of being in this world that looks like wholeness, But actually, when it reaches the end of its course, it reveals itself to be brokenness, a fracturing, a fraction of the kind that can only be described as hellish. On the other hand, Jesus shows us a way of life that's filled with suffering, a way of being in this world that's marked by trial, that looks like brokenness from the outside. But when it reaches the end of its course, it reveals itself to be complete, whole, lacking nothing, heavenly. So in other words, all of the maiming, all of the loss, all of the hurt and the scars and the pain that you identify and experience in this life, in the present, are drawing you closer into the wholeness of the life of God now and forever. Trials in wholeness understood in this way 
allow us to enter into the suffering as a place, a kind of greenhouse, where our wholeness and holiness can flourish and thrive. Now, this paradox about wholeness that Jesus teaches helps us to see that we may right now be broken in ways that we cannot recognize because what we define as wholeness is actually brokenness. And that right now, we may be unable, incapable of being broken over sin because we're currently blind to it because the trial has not yet revealed it. But when we adopt Jesus' teaching about wholeness, we start to see that trials do not break us. They reveal a brokenness that's already there. And it's the trial, by revealing the brokenness, that brings healing, despite the pain that we might encounter. Now, this paradox of wholeness and brokenness is taught by Jesus and explained here by James, emphasizes the necessity of wisdom to distinguish between true and false pictures of wholeness to recognize brokenness that's disguised as wholeness. It's really this convincing disguise that makes temptations so appealing, right? Remember, trials can be temptations as well, and they're appealing because they come across as something that can offer us wholeness, that can make up for something that's lacking in our lives. So greed and anger, lust and violence— deception, and laziness, and every other kind of sin promises to make us whole and complete. And in the short term, they appear to make good on that promise. But in the long term, all they do is wound our inner selves. They breach our relationship with others, and they evaporate our hope in God because they can't make good on their promises. Temptations promise heaven and deliver hell. But it's this deception that's the very reason that endurance is necessary because endurance will outlast the capability of temptation to maintain its disguise. Our staying power to see the full course of that temptation through allows us to come out on the other side recognizing what true wholeness actually looks like. So I want to suggest that as we navigate trials, much of our Christian life is going to be made up of rejecting false pictures of wholeness and instead receiving the true wholeness that Christ alone can offer. The poet Malcolm Gite expresses this well, and he urges us to see through the deception in the disguise of wholeness is defined by this world. And he urges us to identify instead with the wholeness of Christ. He says... How much we make of wellness, health, and wholeness, the ideal body, the unblemished form. How deeply we despise and hide our weakness and worship all the world thinks strong and firm. And how each facile, photoshopped appearance haunts and accuses children as they grow until they pine for their own disappearance and waste away and never tell their woe. But you have never fallen for this idol. You had no form or beauty. Hurt and shamed, a stumbling block, a mockery, a scandal, you lived with the rejected in the main. Don't count me with the strong and tanned 
and thin. Count me with the maimed, but count me in. Why is it that we would want to be counted with the maimed, to be counted with our Lord? It's because our Lord has proven to us that the paradox of wholeness and brokenness is not a mere illusion or sleight of hand, but it's real and true. In his service to others, in his betrayal, in his suffering, in his death, he took on the form of brokenness. To all external observers, his way was not whole. It was not worthy of walking in. So they abandoned him. They didn't ask to be counted in. But in his resurrection, he proved the veracity of his claims, the truth of the paradox that wholeness and healing are found through trial and suffering. Significantly, in his resurrected, glorified body, the marks of his suffering and brokenness remain. The risen Lord, in his marked body, reached maturity and completeness that lacked nothing. In his scarring and in his marks, Jesus promised us a share in that glory as well. A share to all those who take up their cross and follow him. To those who endure to the end. But by his grace, we don't have to wait until the very end to begin to taste of that glory in the present. Because Jesus rose in this life and talks to us in this life and welcomes us into his kingdom now, it's as if we receive a down payment of that future inheritance in our sanctification and in our restoration now. What I mean is this. Even in this life, in your life, God is using your present suffering to transform you and to change you. I suspect that if you look at your life closely enough, you'll be able to start identifying the ways in which trials that appeared to break you left you off more whole and holy on the other side, that weeded out sin, that weeded out fracturing, so that you aren't who you used to be, even though you're not yet who you will become. I think all of us can look at where we are now, having passed through a really difficult circumstance, and have found a way to be thankful for those hardships, And in fact, as we've seen sin ripped out of our life through the hardship, we're disgusted by who we used to be. And we're disgusted by the thought that we would have kept living that way without a trial. So in that way, we taste of God's grace already, knowing that he's making us out to be a different kind of people because of the hardship. And as we start to see that fruit in our lives, without even thinking about it, without forcing ourselves, without contriving anything, we start to comply with James' shocking exhortation to consider your present experience of trial a great joy. And I think that is the exact kind of way that we ought to count our trials a great joy. James is not asking us to put our heads down and press forward and conjure up joy in a manufactured sense, but to realize the joy that comes through the trial and to celebrate it even in the present. Yeah, we are all too aware that in this paradox of wholeness and brokenness, we don't get the fullness of the joy now. None of us are guaranteed freedom from trial in this life. 
there are no guarantees that we're freed from trials in this life or that we get the fullness of joy in this life. But there is the promise of future glory. And this promise enables future joy even when we don't have the reflexive response of joy as we begin to to appreciate our trial in the present. This is why James writes in verse 12 that the one who endures trials is blessed or happy because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. A life that's whole and complete, lacking nothing, no trace of death. A life that God has promised to those who love him. In this promise, there's a future joy that won't elude us. And as we walk in faith in that promise, it acts like a pipeline that delivers that future joy into our present trials, even as we navigate hardship. I want to give one brief clarification here, because sometimes when we hear the command to consider trials a great joy, we wrongly start to feel as if we're sinning if our emotions don't feel happy as we go through a hard circumstance. But this command is not primarily targeting your feelings or emotions. And it certainly does not require a display of superficial smiles. The Christian conception of joy is one that's not antithetical to suffering and sorrow, but one that can enter into suffering and sorrow with a long view to the restoration of all things. So for that reason, don't hear James commanding you to dance gleefully through life pretending as if trials don't exist. Don't plaster on a smile that's nothing more than a facade. James instead is calling us to faith in the promise of the future joy that will in turn aid our endurance of trials in the present, that will allow us to endure suffering like Jesus, who holds sorrow and joy together, who endured the cross for the promise of future joy. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer captures this calling well in a letter he wrote from his prison cell eight months before he was executed at the hands of German soldiers. He wrote this, Everything we may with some good reason expect or beg of God is to be found in Jesus Christ. What we imagine a God could and should do, the God of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with all that. We must immerse ourselves again and again for a long time and quite calmly in Jesus' life, his sayings, actions, suffering, and dying in order to recognize what God promises and fulfills. What is certain is that we may always live aware that God is near and present with us and that this life is an utterly new life for us, that there is nothing that is impossible for us anymore because there's nothing that is impossible for God that no earthly power can touch us without God's will, and that danger and urgent need can only drive us closer to God. What is certain is that we have no claim on anything, but may ask for everything. What is certain is that in suffering lies hidden the source of our joy, in dying the source of our life. What is certain is that in all this we stand with a a community that carries us. To all this, God has said yes and amen in Jesus. This yes and amen is the solid ground on which we stand. 
in God's yes and amen in Jesus, we have the assurance that we can joyfully endure trials because they'll ultimately produce wholeness and holiness in our lives. Let's ask God for the faith and the grace to endure so that this can happen. Father, we come before you asking you to do the impossible, to allow us to see wholeness and holiness clearly, to endure in faith, to be transformed into the image of your Son. Would you change us? Would you make us like Christ? Would you allow us to bear up with one another, to rejoice and weep with one another, all the while aiming towards transformation into the image of Christ? We believe that you'll help us. We trust that you will, that you'll comfort us in our sorrows so that we'll, even in sorrow, be rejoicing as we await the return of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.